Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Vice Potential Podcast. I'm your host, Dan Berkman. In this episode, I'm going to be doing the second and final episode in the series on Aaron Burr that I've been doing. Which means that if you haven't heard the first episode, you probably should stop the podcast right here and go back and listen to the first one. It literally was the episode before, so you don't even have to go looking that far. Now, the reason I say that is because context is important, especially since we're talking about a story here, something with a beginning, middle, and end. Everything's important. And also because if you don't pick up on the context from the beginning about how crazy this guy's life was, you're not going to believe any of the things I'm going to say are going to be in this episode. So for those that know, in this one episode, we're going to be talking about private islands, treason, incest, court cases, all involving three future presidents. Pretty cool, right? Exactly. So I would strap in because this one is a bit of a doozy. In the last episode, we left Aaron Burr in a rather desperate situation. He was embarrassed politically, ostracized from his friends, and in debt to about every creditor there was in this young country. Although the situation was dire, Burr elected to not give up. Instead, he decided to go filibustering in Mexico to rebuild his fortunes, both personal and financial. Many of you are probably familiar with the term filibuster in a senatorial context, you know, which is where one speaker would monopolize the floor to stall for time on a given issue. Well, this type of filibustering is different. It's an act of invasion by a private army or citizen without governmental approval. Essentially, being a pirate without the ship. Although seemingly an extreme concept, it wasn't exactly a new one. Back in 1775, Richard Montgomery had filibustered up in Canada. 20 years later, in 1797, Senator William Blunt attempted to ally with the English government to claim Spanish-held territories in the United States. Augustus McGee left the U.S. Army to filibuster in Texas. In fact, filibustering became such a regular, or at least debated, occurrence that to curb such actions in the future, the United States passed the Neutrality Act of 1794, making it illegal to invade a country on friendly terms with the Union. Kind of odd that you had to write a thing like that down, huh? Don't go invading other countries, guy. However, despite the law, during wartime, a blind eye could be turned since often these privateers could do and take things that the government couldn't do formally. A successful filibuster was hoping to create a military force invade a country at war with the United States, and upon completion of the conflict, it be offered to keep the money and land that they had secured from a grateful nation. This quasi-legal scheme is what Aaron Burr seemed to have had in mind. However, being a lawyer, Burr knew the rules and needed just the right situation and tensions to exploit, which President Jefferson managed to provide for him, and very quickly. During his term, Jefferson made the Louisiana Purchase from France, 
which is where the United States acquired much of the Midwest and Southern territories from a broke Napoleon. By doing so, Jefferson provided Burr with the tensions that he needed. The United States was now bordered on the southern and western sides by Mexico. This caused hostilities to rise as both sides looked at each other suspiciously, fearing invasion, expansion by the other country, and worst of all, raiding parties. It begs the question, why would Aaron Burr feel the need to filibuster in the first place? Was he a desperate man hoping to rebuild his fortune and honor out west? Was Burr doing what he had always done, seeking new and better opportunities to advance himself when a door closed? Or had it been like it was with Washington, Jefferson, and Clinton, where his actions were defined by or in direct response to the wishes of other people? In this podcast, I aim to at least lay out the facts for you and let you interpret them as you will and make your own conclusions. In 1804, on Burr's way out of the vice presidential office, he took a meeting with Anthony Mary, the British Prime Minister to the United States. In their meeting, Burr was said to have mentioned that Great Britain could regain some power in the Southwest if they provided money and guns to his, quote, operation. The reason for the air quotes that you can't see, but rest assured they're there, is because Burr's operation and the intentions of it have been a hotly debated issue for over a hundred years now. Sadly, since the guy is not here, we can never know what he was truly meaning and what was in his heart. In further meetings, Burr was said to have offered Britain the state of Louisiana for half a million dollars and access to a British fleet. Although Mary was interested, and he had written back to Parliament regarding it, he got no response from them. Perhaps out of pity... Mary gave Burr $1,500, although after that he was quickly recalled back to London. The meetings with Mary were shortly preceded by the reappearance of General James Wilkinson in Burr's life. The pair of former Revolutionary War soldiers reconnected in 1801 when Wilkinson was after some of the political offices that Burr was expected to give out but could not after he became vice president. See? Have to listen to the first episode first. You have no idea what I'm talking about. Anyways, uh, Wilkinson stuck his head back in the doorway again in 1804 while he was campaigning for the governorship of the newly created Louisiana Territory, which he would win, by the way. During this time, Burr and Wilkinson discussed the filibustering idea further. Wilkinson was a big help because he had been down this road many, many, many times before. It needed that many. You'll know why in a second. You see, when Wilkinson was not busy with the affairs of state, he was busy being a traitor against the United States government. Future commentators on the man, like President Theodore Roosevelt, called Wilkinson the following. In all of our history, there has never been a more despicable character than General James Wilkinson. In fact, when you hear about a guy that evil, you almost want to learn more about him. And it's a good thing, too, because he becomes such a large part of the story that it's impossible to move forward with any kind of focus without discussing him at least in some detail. So, here we go. James Wilkinson was in the process of building himself out of the lower middle class by attending the University of Pennsylvania when the Revolutionary War broke out. Seeking an opportunity, Wilkinson joined the army. 
During his time, he served with distinction at the Siege of Boston and during the failed assault on Canada, both in 1776. As a bit of kismet, Wilkinson was sent into Canada as part of the reinforcements for Benedict Arnold's besieged army, which Aaron Burr was a part of, although there is no record of the two meeting at that time. After that campaign, Wilkinson joined General Horatio Gates' staff. Following the close of the Battle of Saratoga, Wilkinson was sent to give the official report to Congress by General Gates. Wilkinson took the opportunity of giving the report by himself to give a heavily exaggerated version where he played a far greater role in the battle than he ever actually did. Congress was so impressed by what they heard that they promoted Wilkinson over more senior officers to become Brigadier General at the tender age of 20. When General Gates found out about this, he was so disgusted by Wilkinson's performance, both in his speech to Congress and his backroom dealing, that he compelled him by force to resign from the army. Wilkinson later resurfaced in modern-day Kentucky, which was still part of Virginia at the time. While there, Wilkinson allied himself with the movement to separate Kentucky into its own state. As a fun fact, this brought Wilkinson into direct contact with future Vice President Richard Mentor Johnson's father. To advance these interests, Wilkinson took a trip to New Orleans, which at the time was the capital of Spanish-controlled Louisiana. While there, he met with the Spanish government and managed to secure a monopoly on the Mississippi River by securing far lower taxation rates than even the U.S. government could get. Wilkinson also signed a document declaring his allegiance to the King of Spain. When the efforts to work with Kentucky kind of petered out, at least publicly, Wilkinson became a paid spy for the Spanish government. He received a pension and everything. And even after that, they let Wilkinson back into the army. In fact, not only did they let him back in the army, they gave him a role of prestige. The guy was on hand and was the person who represented Thomas Jefferson to take possession of the Louisiana Purchase. Wilkinson, being the scumbag he is and didn't waste an opportunity, while there, he sold governmental secrets to the Spanish government and also tipped them off on the fact that Lewis and Clark were coming on their famous expedition in case they wanted to try, quote, something. Wilkinson provided Burr with maps and introduction to his Spanish contacts. Burr then began a trek through the southern states to gather some information, get a feel for the territory, do some thinking, and start making some contacts of his own, which might prove valuable if something were to happen. Who's to say? One such stop on this trip was with Harmon Blanderhassett, a wealthy Irish lordling. Back in Ireland, Blanderhassett was a successful lawyer who came from an even wealthier and more prominent family. He was so rich, in fact, that he and his family lived on the largest house in the American West, which, as an added bonus, was on its own private island. Blanderhassett was something of an eccentric. He was an amateur scientist, philosopher, and he was also chased out of Ireland for marrying his own sister's daughter, but uh, the less said about that, the better. 
Burr was friendly with Blanderhassett, and the latter provided support both emotionally and financially, and also gave him a cool island base to gather men and supplies on. While Burr was busy making his rounds and getting friendly with the Blanderhassets, Wilkinson was using his contacts on both American and Spanish sides to create the kind of war footing that benefited their mutual strategy. Some of these contacts included the governor of West Florida, the governor of Massachusetts, and the governor of New York. Burr made many other stops as well, such as with future President Andrew Jackson, who in 1805, when the visit occurred, was far removed from his triumphs in the War of 1812, or even his illegal invasion of Florida, which was filibustering and all but name. But that's a story for a different day. We're unsure of Jackson's official response to Burr's plans, but from what we know of the man, especially in those days, he was out to prove himself and was probably just a little bit intrigued. In fact, even after Burr left, the two remained in correspondence for some time. Eventually, Jackson's nephew joined the force and was stationed on Blanderhassett Island for the time. Burr's circle continued to widen as he allied with either current or former senators. He also reconnected with Edward Livingston of the legendary New York Federalist family, who once served as mayor of New York, who had checked out of the whole political rat race in Manhattan and moved to Louisiana for a fresh start. Wilkinson also introduced Burr to future President William Henry Harrison, who at the time was Indiana's territorial governor. The pair met for a few days, and Burr reported positively in his journals on the meeting, but it's not clear to the extent of Harrison's involvement or interest. Kind of wacky, huh? Two future presidents are involved in this thing, if only slightly. Aaron Burr decided to schedule a meeting with Carlos Martinez de Yerujo, who is the Spanish minister to the United States. Although, once again, we can't know the specifics, it was reported later that Burr informed Martinez that his goal was not simply to separate the new Western territories from the United States, but the capture of Washington, D.C. as well. Regardless of what was said, let's focus on what happened. Martinez was impressed with Burr and provided him with several thousand dollars to start up capital. The Spanish government in Madrid never officially commented on Burr or his plans, but due to the involvement of Martinez, they certainly were at least a little aware. And also the fact that they had worked with and paid Wilkinson before meant that they were probably on board just a little bit. With some momentum and an influx of the sons of senators, foreign adventurers, and some startup capital, Burr decided to lay down some roots. Burr purchased a quarter of a million acres of land near the Texas border from the Spanish government, which he apparently wanted to settle. Burr attempted to hide in plain sight while waiting for the political discourse between Mexico and the United States to hit a fever pitch. Such an arrangement was not all that bizarre, especially in the developing territories. However, a former vice president can't just walk around without anyone noticing, especially when you're buying a ton of land. Burr's name started to pop up in local newspapers on his journey. Some merely reported his comings and goings, while others were printing either lies or at least exaggerations, depending on what you'd like to believe. When Burr returned to Blanderhassett Island after his visit in the South, it was raided by the governor of Ohio, who had received suspicious reports of men in arms 
leaving the island at all hours. Burr and Blannerhassett managed to escape in a boat, but their base of operations, at least in Ohio, was gone for the moment. And that was only the beginning of the bad news. In Kentucky, the district attorney had Burr brought up on charges of planning an invasion of Mexico and attempting to separate the western states from the Union. The court case was a bit of a joke as it evaporated rather quickly, as virtually no proof could be found. It also helped that Burr was defended by Henry Clay, who at this point was simply a well-regarded lawyer, but who would grow into one of the great and controversial political minds of his age. While all this was going on, Wilkinson got word of the issues in Ohio and Kentucky and saw the opportunity to turn on the conspiracy and writes to Thomas Jefferson about it. Fearing that Burr's sloppy efforts were going to be uncovered and that Wilkinson's role was going to be revealed and also that his role with the Spanish government was going to be made even more clear, wanted to get out of this thing as soon as he could. At first, Wilkinson's letters were ignored. Wilkinson then wrote Jefferson again, but this time more desperately, writing about a vast conspiracy and asked that martial law be placed in New Orleans, which would mean that he could rule virtually unchecked. Not hearing back from Jefferson soon enough, Wilkinson kicked up a fuss claiming to the citizens of New Orleans that Burr's army was right outside and could be here at any moment. Wilkinson used the ensuing chaos to arrest Burr's allies. When the letters finally reached Jefferson, or when he finally read them, take your pick, he used these as his cause belli to investigate Aaron Burr a little more closely. Jefferson had Blennerhassett Island attacked by a Virginia militia. Both Burr and Blennerhassett got away again, but this was not good. In December of 1806, Only two years after being removed from the vice presidency, Burr was a fugitive and one of the most notorious men in the entire country. At this point, Burr was not sure who would get him first, Jefferson's men or Wilkinson's men. And he also didn't know which one of those would be worse. Burr, being a smart and well-read man and also a good lawyer, knew that he could not escape the fight, but he could pick the battlefield. Burr was deathly afraid of being tried in New Orleans because his co-conspirator Wilkinson was the military governor during a time of martial law. Wilkinson would ensure that Burr would not only not get a fair trial, but perhaps not even allow him to escape with his life. Burr decided to turn himself into the governor of nearby Mississippi, a man named Cowles Meade. Why Mississippi of all places? Burr was actually wildly popular in the area due to his defense of the middle and lower classes back when he was a senator and also the vice president. Also, having such a man of distinction in their state got cheers from nearly every walk of life. After meeting for a few days with Meade, Burr's surrender was agreed to. The trial that quickly proceeded was practically an open-shut case. Burr was found innocent of all charges. However, the judge still considered Burr a threat and forbade him to leave. 
Burr considered debating the issue, but at this point, he was rather paranoid that Wilkinson's spies would come in and abduct him. So the only option Burr had for himself was to run, which is exactly what he did. In an effort to blend in with the folk of the area, Burr did away with his finery and jewels, which he replaced with a big straw hat, rags, and a tin cup hanging from his belt. On February 18th, Federal Land Register Nicholas Perkins saw what he thought was Burr in the Alabama Territory, which was nearly 200 miles away from where he should be. After a brief chase, Burr was captured and marched to a local inn where he was kept for the night. Over the next few hours, a guard was formed that swore under penalty of death to take Burr to Virginia so he could be tried by a real jury this time. During the course of the march, Burr tried to escape again, but in rather humiliating fashion, he fell off his horse into some mud. As you would expect, Burr's upcoming trial was the grandest of political theater. The courthouse, jail cell, and lawyers' offices were packed day in and night out with onlookers. Making it all the more scandalous were the rags that Burr had arrived in the city wearing. When the trial began on March 30, 1807 in the small Eagle Hill Tavern, there were literal fights for the right to sit and watch. The case would be judged by none other than John Marshall, Chief Justice of the Supreme Court. The charges against Burr were the following. Treason for assembly of a militia aimed at the purposes of separating New Orleans from the United States, and a high misdemeanor for sending a military force against a foreign government. President Jefferson seemed hell-bent on crushing Burr, and therefore armed U.S. Attorney George Hay with a variety of legal weapons. Hay had a list of over 140 witnesses he planned on calling, which included luminaries like Andrew Jackson. In addition to that, Jefferson provided Hay with blanket pardons to use on whoever he wanted to bring further witnesses as long as it meant conviction for Burr. Over the course of the trial, Burr's legal team did something rather stunning in response, something that had never quite been done before. They subpoenaed a sitting United States president. This was not some random stroke or attempt, but it was actually relevant to their case. The primary pieces of evidence were letters that Jefferson had allegedly received primarily from Wilkinson. Jefferson refused to testify due to executive privilege. In a rather stunning decision, it was decided that if subpoenaed, Jefferson would have to appear, which set a very important precedent that the President of the United States was not above the law. This led to a really amazing showdown, but to get the full effect of it, I'd have to dedicate a whole podcast to the trial, which I'm totally down for, since there were so many twists and turns and great speeches and some evidence that might help us unpack what really happened here. If you're interested in me doing an episode like that, please let me know by emailing me at vppodcast at gmail.com. However, for now, we're going to have to summarize so the story can move along. The court case raged for months and hinged on the concept that Burr had not performed an overt act of treason. 
The centerpiece of the prosecution's case was a letter written by Wilkinson, which he later admitted to editing to distance himself from the conspiracy. Without access to this evidence, the standard of treason was difficult to reach, which was an overt act of treason witnessed by at least two people. Burr was said to have even been using his First Amendment rights, and there was merely dissatisfied with his government. Therefore, Burr was eventually acquitted on all charges. Historians and commentators have been debating about Burr's guilt ever since. To make a long story short, do I think Burr was guilty by the standard of the time? No, he wasn't. If the case was tried in modern times with modern laws, perhaps it would be different, but we simply can't do that. That's revisionist. However, his actions after the case and after he leaves the U.S. perhaps hint at his true intentions just a little bit. Following the trial, Burr found himself unpopular in the U.S. and besieged by creditors, so he opted to move to England. While in England, Burr became very friendly with philosopher Jeremy Bentham. You might remember Bentham from your college philosophy class. He was the utilitarianism guy, you know, the greater good, the greater good. Damn you, Simon Pegg! Anyways, uh, Burr continued to pitch his idea of war against Mexico while he was in England, France, and the Netherlands. He traveled around just a little bit. The idea he had was to use Florida as a gigantic base to attack Mexico, the Bahamas, Cuba, and maybe Jamaica as well. The plot was to use the looming war with England, which did come two years later in 1812, as the cover for the actions. To make a long story short, he was met with varying degrees of success, but none of his attempts really made it out of the planning stages. Probably the grandest of his schemes got all the way up to Napoleon himself, who apparently was not interested. Now you're probably wondering, what about Wilkinson and Blanderhassett? What became of them after the trial? Well, Wilkinson managed to survive the Burr conspiracy without charges, but he lost his position in Louisiana. As soon as Jefferson left office, the next president, James Madison, ordered Wilkinson be court-martialed. Of course, as you would expect, Wilkinson survived that as well. Which leads me to a wonderful quote about Wilkinson that endures all these years later. Wilkinson, the man who lost every battle but won every court-martial. <laughs> now, you're not going to believe this, but... After all of this, after being court-martialed, the army wanted him back again, this time to fight in the War of 1812, in which he lost two battles, by the way. In 1815, Wilkinson resigned from the army. After that, he was named the U.S. envoy to Mexico for the last decade of his life, which ended in 1825. During that time, he kept wanting to get a further pension from the Spanish government, which never ended up coming. Blennerhassett was ruined by the Burr scandal. His once mighty mansion was burned down by patriotic citizens. Blennerhassett tried to make a go of it as a plantation owner in Mississippi, a lawyer in both Canada and in England, but failed at each. Blennerhassett sadly died in 1831, with a shadow of his former wealth.
Blennerhassett's famous home was rebuilt in the 1980s and is now a popular tourist spot, which you can go see today if you want to. Hey, it's the summer. Why not stop by? Bert found himself too poor to travel back home. Eventually, in 1811, he managed to get aboard a French ship and return to America. Once back in New York, Burr used his mother's maiden name, Edwards, and restarted his legal practice. In February of 1814, after the heat died down a little, Burr reappeared under his own name, asking the state legislature for a land grant. According to Burr, he had served in the Army for four years without any compensation and spent the majority of his time patrolling and protecting New York State, so they kind of owed him one. Burr's bill and petition fell on deaf ears, but he did manage to make a rather good friend out of it, Martin Van Buren. Yeah, that Martin Van Buren, who we met back with Richard Menner Johnson on a previous episode, who went on to become president. Ever the schemer and fundraiser, Burr, at the age of 77, married a wealthy widow 19 years his junior. Burr then seized control of his bride's fortune and began to spend like mad. When she discovered Burr's action, the pair separated, as you would expect. In 1834, Burr suffered a horrible stroke which left him immobile. With the support from his friends, he secured a modest boarding house in Staten Island, where he lived till he died two years later in 1836. Aaron Burr was a rather polarizing personality. Burr had many dear friends of both class and distinction, but managed to acquire enemies of equal renown. During his life, Burr was a feminist that gave his daughter a high level of education, hung a portrait of Mary Wollstonecraft above his desk, but was also a frequent customer of prostitutes. Burr was a champion of social issues like emancipation, but was not above working with large slave masters if it meant his own advancement. And, in fact, he owned a slave himself. Burr also wanted to be his own person, but, ironically, is often discussed as a footnote in history to larger personalities like his rival Hamilton, or had his actions greatly controlled or influenced by other people. So a guy who set out to be his own man doesn't really seem like he ever was. In my eyes, there are two ways to look at Aaron Burr. Aaron Burr's actions either flew in direct conflict to who the founding fathers thought they were. Jefferson, Washington, Hamilton looked at themselves as Romanesque senators serving the whims of the people and the Constitution. The titans of this new American government were supposed to be better than Burr, or at least present a better public face. We learn in our studies of American history that our founding fathers were not perfect. For example, Jefferson was a hypocrite, and Hamilton was an aristocrat, but their public personas during their lives did not exactly reflect that. Burr lived his life out in the open, which included his attitude to politics. Burr was ahead of the curve and serves as an example of what the new American politics would be going forward. Another way to look at the story of Aaron Burr is rather sadly. This is a man of immense talent and immense skill and immense drive that was controlled and taken advantage of by other people. 
It could be said that Washington used him during the Revolutionary War days. It could be said that Jefferson used him twice in presidential elections, one successfully, one one not. Jefferson also used him as a scapegoat. Wilkinson used him as a pawn in one of his many other plans to be a filibuster, to take on money from the Spanish government. It really can be seen as kind of a sad story, too. So instead of focusing on the guilt of Aaron Burr, I think there's two ways to look at him. The Machiavellian man behind some of the most interesting things that have ever happened in the early part of our American history, or someone you should feel bad for. And to be honest, after looking at it and reading a lot about it, I mostly feel bad. I feel bad for Aaron Burr. I feel that he was taken advantage of. Now, was he blameless in all this? Absolutely not. But would Aaron Burr be the man he was without the influence of some of these people? I don't know. And that's the thing. The same thing with the filibuster campaign, working with the Spanish government, we'll never know for sure. And all we can do is speculate. And I hope I've done that with this podcast series, is enable you to get to know Aaron Burr more as a complete person. And get him beyond the fact that he shot Alexander Hamilton so that you can draw your own conclusions on this very complex individual. Now, of course, I'm not able to do a full episode on every little thing about Aaron Burr's life, but he was a fascinating individual, and I recommend that you actually go out and do some more reading on your own if you're interested. So with that, uh, I think I'm going to wrap this episode up. But before I go, I'm curious what you think. What do you think of Aaron Burr now? Did this podcast change how you felt about him? What do you think? Was he guilty after all? How do you look at him? Was he a Machiavellian schemer or was he someone to feel possibly pity for? Email me at vppodcast at gmail.com and let me know what you think. I'm dying to hear from you. With that said, I think it's uh, time to uh, close the book on this one. But I'd like to thank you, as always, for taking the time to hang out with me, learn some history, and uh, listen to me blab on. So, until next time, I've been Dan Berkman, this has been the Vice Potential Podcast, and you have been a great audience. Catch you next time. Good night, everybody.